Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a podcast that explores the art and science of leadership. I'm Kate Arms. I'm Alyssa Dickman. I'm Nitya Shaker. Each episode, we deep dive into one leadership book to share what we liked and what we think you can apply to your own personal leadership journey. All right, today we are here to talk about The Power of Us, which is the newest book by Professor J. Van Bavel and Professor Dominic Packer. It came out in 2020, if I'm not mistaken. It's a book written by psychologists, and uh, we'll we'll get into just the the implications of that and what it was like to, to read from like a psychologist's perspective. Um, some of these phenomena, but The Power of Us deals with identity first and foremost. The book really integrates research, so psychological research, neuroscientific research into what identity is to help explain how identity works, how it shapes us, and how we can shape it too. So it, it kind of goes both ways. I, I thought it was a, a fascinating read. It's as much, like I said, social science research as it is leadership concepts. And there are some great stories in there. So let me just start by asking, what was it like to read this book? What did you think? What were some impressions you had coming out of it? So the first thing that I sort of say on that is that the subtitle of the book set me up for expecting a different kind of book than I found mm. inside. The subtitle is Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. And I read that as leading towards a really practical book. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's not a very practical book. There's not a lot of here's how to use this information to solve problems. There are bits and pieces of sort of here's something that you, you might want to play with, but it's really the, the two PhDs on the title would have been a better <laughs> signal for the kind of book that it is, because it really is looking at some of the nuances yeah. of some of the research and some of the stories. And so some of the things that I really, really appreciated the most in this book is there are a bunch of studies that I got in Psych 101 decades ago that research since then has shed light on nuances and ways of understanding what happened and the data in those studies that is more provocative. And reading that was really, really interesting because it challenged some of the basic assumptions that I have about what that research earlier established. And every time that those kinds of nuances get put into my brain, it gives me more room to go, okay, let's get curious about what actually matters. And when I go into a situation where I have to practically apply it, I have more nuance in mm-hmm. my understanding. So it took me a while to realize the kind of book I was reading. Once I did, I started really appreciating. But because it's got so much research, you have to actually have to think pretty hard about it. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with Kate. One thing that I really did like is what I find sometimes where there's something that we feel we know instinctively. So this idea that, you know, I'm part of this group and I'm part of this group and I have this background and this background. It's something that I think we instinctively know that we're made up of these different identities, but then reading something like this then actually gives us the data behind it and lets us dig in past just our instinct and says, oh yeah, I know my religion has something to do with how I behave in the world. My neighborhood has something to do with how I behave in the world, but being able to actually read the research and as Kate said, dig a little bit deeper and get into those nuances 
I really liked that. And then I wanted also a little bit more practical in terms of, okay, so what does this mean? And what can this then mean in how we work as teams? And yeah, so in that way, it sounds like what we're getting at is it's really a a mindset book in in that sense, right? I mean, it's a little bit about how to think about identity and it offers some ideas on understanding human behavior at a large scale. I think that's where this research comes in is it's you know, it's as much about, okay, let me, let me look at myself and understand my own multitudes of identities. But I think more importantly, looking at large scale behavior and saying, okay, well, how can we better understand large scale behavior, such as big social movements, big political movements, activity on social media and all the frankly craziness that happens there on a day-to-day basis. And so I kind of feel like that the leadership lessons are there and they're indirect because you go through that process of understanding human behavior via understanding identity to then say, well, what's the opportunity here for leaders? I don't know that leaders maybe would otherwise instinctively connect their job as leaders with harnessing identity, right? Or doing something with identity. I don't know if everybody necessarily thinks about it that way, right? I think a lot of leaders think about it as I have a mission and I'm here to do a job or get the best performance or, you know, there's all kinds of ways leaders think about themselves. And I don't know if identity is one of them. So I think that's the shift that you get to by the end of the book once you once you kind of go through it all. I think so. One thing that really struck me was when they talked about leadership from an individual focus to a group focus. Yeah. Because when you talk about, I don't know how many leaders take this into account. I I know that all three of us work with leaders to say, get to know your people. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, one of the ways in that I use is figure out their strengths, talk about their strengths and understand the different strengths that people bring and not necessarily getting as much into identity, which I think is a, is a, different opportunity. And then I also was kind of checking myself and saying, I think that when I'm working with leaders, I'm focusing a little bit more on the individual focus Mm -hmm. rather. And, and so what would it, what will it look like for me to bring more of that group focus into the work I do with leaders? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you point to that piece because I'm thinking about um, a series of lunch and learns that I've got scheduled uh, that I'm in the process of preparing uh, for right now. So I'm thinking about them and they're about coaching and they're about using coaching skills as leaders. So not as not, not being a coach, but using coaching skills and the distinction I'm making across the series is one-on-ones and teams. And it, it points to that places they're they're different. And part of the work that I've been doing with one of the places in the organization that I'm working is actually trying to help them change their sense of identity so that they're less, we're this one little team, but more we're connected to the whole value stream. And the whole value stream is actually one team and we're all working together to, to change who they think of as our team. And at the same time, the little bit of team that has thought of itself as an isolated group to get them updating their sense of who we are as a team every time they onboard and offboard somebody. And so I'm really playing in this identity as a team space right now. And it's really interesting to bring these kinds of ideas to people who haven't thought about 
how much of a difference this makes. Yes, it really, really does. And I think that's what the the bulk of the research and stories that kick off the book really tell us. I, I think I'm really struck, for instance, even just fundamentally about the, the story of how Jay Van Babel and Dominic Packer actually became friends and, and became collaborators. This story around a Packer saving Van Babel's life as he was choking on something. I mean, it, it's a, it, there's a whole long story behind it, but I think that the takeaway of the story is they actually initially didn't um, necessarily get along. <laughs> Um, or just kind of tolerated each other, let's say. And the shared experience of one saving the other's life, so a moment of crisis, in other words, is what actually brought them together and made them become friends. And now, of course, they're collaborators and, and um, you know, close associates. But that that made me think of, well, what is it that creates a shared identity? And this book, I think, helped me see very clearly that anything can. I mean, the the, the Packer and Van Babel story tells us that I think uh, shared moments of crisis can absolutely do that. And I think we can probably relate to that. I have stories of, you know, um, people I'm friends with because of something we went through together that was actually really, really hard. You know, it also doesn't have to be necessarily hard or painful. I think with the three of us on this call, we all met because of a leadership program that we all went through. And we were literally part of a, a, a group that the program referred to as a tribe, right? And so we were kind of thrown together in this shared experience. And so that identity was kind of created that way. But it can also be created just totally randomly. I mean, I love the, the story in the book about how even flipping a coin... <laughs> And randomly assigning people to one group or the other evoked that affiliation that you have. And, you know, just your team A, your team B by toss of a coin. And all of a sudden it's just like, this is, you know, <laughs> I belong here. These are my people. <laughs> Um, and it's it's incredible and it's powerful. I mean, and I know later we'll talk about just the power of that and, and the implications of that. But I think just for starters, it's pretty interesting to see that we have a fundamental need for belonging and affiliation. And that's why we so, I think, readily form those kinds of attachments. Yeah, there were a couple of the nuances in some of the studies where the data got examined more carefully, I'm thinking of the um, Stanford prison experiment and the mm -hmm. um, Milgram experiment in particular, because those are psych 101 basics. Both of the studies had cases where people behaved badly. And the initial sort of the interpretation was sort of groupthink is just really pervasive and that sort of thing. But when they dug down into the details of the text, mm -hmm. there were turning points in the experiment where one piece of text triggered an invitation to see yourself with this kind of identity. And if somebody accepted that invitation and took on that identity, the rest of their behavior for the rest of the experiment was changed. And yeah. I think as leaders, that's really, really important to notice because what it points to is is subtle changes of vocabulary have massive ripple effects and they happen fast. They can happen inadvertently because I'm sure that the people who designed the studies weren't thinking of that as a test criteria that in terms of what the text was in that moment. And if they happen so fast in one direction, what's the possibility they can happen so fast in another direction if you think that they've gone in the wrong direction? I'm really intrigued in how do you recover when things have gone badly? And yeah. I get great hope from the idea that small all changes in vocabulary can have quick ripple effects. Mm. One thing that really stood out to me, Nithya, from what you're talking about is that idea of belonging and they talk about belonging and distinction. So that yeah. idea yeah. of belonging to something special or belonging to a unique group and that 
idea that people helped people who were wearing sports jerseys of their team. I think probably living in Chicago and having grown up <laughs> as a as a bit of a crazy sports I don't, fan. I don't know what you mean. Are there are there sports there, Alyssa? Are there sports in Chicago? Even Sorry. within <laughs> No, that's fine. I'm used to it by now. Even I'm within- in Toronto. We're used to, you know, <laughs> exactly the same thing. The Maple Leafs can throw away a game with any advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And even within the city, the north side versus the south side, and you you don't necessarily live on the south side to be a Sox person. But so that was that was really interesting to me. And then the other story that just kept going through my head as I was reading this was the star-bellied speeches. Mm-hmm. Because that idea of we're special and we have a star on our chest. And then as soon as everybody has it, then it's not special anymore. So what does that mean? And I think we all experience that. And then from what both of you are saying, as a leader, how do you actually create that belonging and distinction without exclusion? Right. Do distinction and inclusion necessarily go together? I guess my question is, how can they go together? Because that's what you want. But does distinction kind of imply some level of exclusion? Yeah, there's definitely a a tension there. I think you're absolutely right. You made me think of in the workplace setting, I think many workplaces have what are called employee resource groups or affinity groups, and they're incredibly well-intentioned and important, you know, in furtherance of diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and creating sense of belonging at work. But, you know, Alyssa, your point is so well made. Creating spaces for people to belong to a unique, or I think in this case, better said, underrepresented or marginalized group, also then says, well, then, well, who's the group for, though? And how do you know? Because it's 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 often not clear cut some of those more individual focuses of identity, such as gender or race or other things. What it, where is that line between creating a, frankly, sacred space for, for people of a certain group to feel community with each other and kind of connect to each other and leaving other people out. Um, and that's true even outside the DEI space. It's, it's you know, who's in, who's out starts to become a big part of that real, real fast. Yeah. And I think that's where the sort of multiplicities of identity work becomes really, really important. You have all of these parts of you and that you could get to choose um, and you have to choose and you have to make those decisions. I'm thinking of in terms of affinity groups, I'm thinking of a day that I did a demo in the women in technology group and all the women on my team came to the meeting that day. They don't always go, but that day they all came because they wanted to hear what Kate had to say. And we had some team meetings that we skipped to go to the women in tech meeting. And so we came back and they were like, so we had a really great dudes in technology meeting today (laughs) because we'd inadvertently (laughs) created (laughs) this team where all of the women had stepped out. Right. Yeah, it's I, I, I'm intrigued by this notion of uh, the choice that we have when it comes to identity, because earlier we were talking about um, the potentially negative effects of harnessing identity. And Kate, you referenced those those older studies. And I think we can all probably think of examples in history and even currently around identity being exploited, right? And, and using, as you said, Kate, language to do so, but other things to do so. There's also the incredible power in advancing really positive behavior, advancing causes that are important to you if if it's done right. But I think it requires 
tapping into um, a sort of 21st identity, if you will. And, and that I'm referencing the, the I am uh, game of like, if you had to, if you had to sit down and say, and, and fill out um, or fill in the blank, excuse me, of I am. And if you had 20 chances to do that, right, what would be the 20 things that you say? This is that like the psychological experiment. In my case, my first, I mean, I don't know, but I'm just coming to my mind right now. I'd probably, you know, I'm, I'm a woman is probably first. Uh, and there are probably other things that come after that, such as my, my race and, you know, that I live in New York and where I work and what I do. And we all have these facets and psychology, you know, uh, this experiment stops it at 20. There may be more. But so when I say the 21st identity, what I'm getting at is like, what is that other shared common thing that a leader can tap into to say, this is the thing we all have in, in common, even if we all come from totally different backgrounds or do totally different kinds of work, what is that thing greater than all of us that becomes a part of our core identity that that we can tap into and it's not always easy to identify that because we've been using you know some lighter examples so far like sports and like other kind of fun stuff but sometimes there's really high stakes in how you define this. So I thought that discussion was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think this is sort of where the B Corp movement is really, really interesting because the B Corp movement is defining stakeholders of a B Corp in a very, very extensive way, including sort of sustainability and the planet. And it taps into vision and identity of a corporation and connects it to that image that gets used all the time. And it showed up in this book and it's still an amazing image of the astronauts looking back at earth and seeing earth rise and yeah. having that moment of sense of identity as a human being resident of earth. And I think there's something in that of, if you think about nested identities and you think about overlapping identities and us as multiplicity, sometimes the place where we get to that sense that we're part of the human race or that we're part yeah. of planet earth yeah. is the place that we have to go to soften some of those. I need protective space because I'm a woman or because I'm an underrepresented sexual orientation or because I'm from yeah. another country or I speak a different language or all of those things that can divide us if we let them. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I'm curious to know a little bit more about your personal connection to, to the notion of identity, um, because I want to get into more of the leadership lessons, but I also want to know just what were some of the personal insights you had around um, identity for you? So I can start off by sharing one of mine that got um, unlocked, I think, in, in this book. And, and, and that is that it doesn't have to be toxic. And then we referred to this earlier about, about some of how this can go wrong. But I think that finding opportunities for cooperation, which is referred to in the book a fair bit, and actually almost putting people in situations where they have to work together actually rewires your brain in favor of identifying with those people. So when I think about, you know, shared identity of our human race and reducing conflict and all of these, I think, wonderful goals that, uh, that we, we have uh, in humanity, like one of the ways to do that is by just putting people together and making them do something together. And that to me is like, it seems so simple, but it's hugely powerful and we don't do it enough because we sit behind our screens, we post on social media, right? We're like us versus them. And I'm going to write something snarky about this. Um, but if we have to achieve some sort of shared mission with somebody that we would otherwise not identify with at all, we're more likely to get along. And like that to me is, is so, so powerful. So um, that, that changed a lot for me. 
me. Thinking of a simulation that we did in a in one of the first classes in the grad program that I did that people will still joke about. And then Nithya, you've got me thinking also, well, these are people that, that are already in the room because they want to study a certain topic. So there, right. there was already that, but then, you know, you're doing this simulation and it's, it's a, one of those survival kind of things and you're ranking, what are the items that are the most important and what would you do? And there was stuff about, you know, this water tank and do you get in the water tank for protection, but then it'll boil. And then you're, and just weird stuff like that, that also just created some fun language and some of those inside jokes, but they're, (laughs) but they're inside of the whole, of the whole group. So everybody can, everybody can relate to that. And I think about that sometimes with teams and the kinds of identities that are created from those experiences that you go through together. When you sometimes hear some of the shorthand language and things like that, that then creates an identity that, you know what, you might've been on a project team three years ago, the project you worked on has now been done and redone or whatever the situation is, but there's still part of your identity is still being on that team that you can connect with people on that team that you haven't talked to in months, but all of a sudden you're immediately back to a familiar ground and familiar language and shorthand. Uh, So that's what, that's what that had me thinking about. And then, you know, since Nithya, you brought up the leadership program that we were in and I was talking about sports. You know, my other topic is summer camp. So that was the personal one that came through for me was, you know, you just you spend a certain amount of time with people in small quarters and going through a routine every day for a certain number of weeks. I think identity and community are just completely intertwined in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot and this book sort of deepened my thinking about it in the moment, but I've also been thinking about it a lot sort of generally over the last few years. The process I've gone through in this dance between distinction and (laughs) connection and belonging, I went through a very, very prolonged period of trying to claim my identity and the only one that the the only label that I accepted during those years was my name that somehow Mm -hmm. like all of the other bits and pieces of me, every time I went into a group where, where there was a sense that that was the identity of the group, I felt like I couldn't be all of me because I couldn't, all of the multiplicities, I couldn't bring all of them into any of the given spaces. And I had to actually go through a process of incorporating all of those bits and pieces into my sense of what Kate was in order to feel like I was having the connections of, of belonging. And it was, it was a very complicated and long and not fun process Mm -hmm. in many ways. And one of the things that became really, really powerful was when I chose to take small pieces of connection with people and invest in that as part of my identity. And the one that comes to mind most is the parents on the teams that my daughter plays on. And they are a group of people who what they have in common is their kids play the same sport. And at first I didn't decide that that was enough for me to make them my people. Hmm. And I would talk to them and chit chat and it's all small talk and it's all the same conversation over and over again about how the kids are doing until I made the choice that they were my people 
And as soon as I made the choice that they were my people, the conversations deepened, the joy I got out of the small talk felt richer. It was Mm. completely an identity mind shift. It had nothing to do with anything external. It was, I just decided they were my people. Yeah. Wow. You, you integrated that with your identity. Yeah. Like you made that choice. Yeah. I made it. And it was conscious. It was really conscious. These are my people because, because that's enough. Our kids play. Yeah. When we get enough, when we just make the decision that we belong, as opposed to putting that in the hands of others to tell us that we belong. Mm. Yeah. I had a really interesting thing happen at work. Not very long ago. I got some feedback as part of a formal feedback cycle um, that somebody was just stunned that I had said in a meeting, I know how to make myself feel like I belong. I know that I belong where I am because I'm there and I know how to make myself feel that. And they were just like, either she's denying that she has normal human needs or she's way more advanced than like I can comprehend. And I was like, no, I've just learned that if I decide to belong, then I belong. And in the body of work that I do known as interplay, one of my mentors in that space said at one point, we've sort of discovered that if people make connections with three other people in the group, if they make one-on-one connections with three other people in the group, the group body seems to gel, seems to come together as a group, as long as there's intersections between those groups of three. Right. And I have remembered that. So one of the things that I now do, if I go into an organization is I'll do things like, okay, where are my three connections? I need to feel like I'm connected to this. So where are my three connections? Okay. Will you go for coffee? Will you grab a glass of water with me? Can we just go for a quick walk? Three connections. Boom. I'm connected. I love that. And it makes me think about the flip side of this, of the, of the leader or leaders of the group, wherever that may be. And how can those folks be more mindful and intentional about creating the spaces and the opportunities for that to happen. Yes, it's in our hands. We are at choice. That's the kind of personal leadership piece. But then in in most of these groups, there's also some designated leader of some kind. And so then how can they take on a little more responsibility there to create belonging? And I love what you said, Kate, because if you'd asked me before you shared that story, like how many people do you have to connect with, you know, to to kind of have that sense of, I don't know, but I would probably would have guessed like, well, everybody has to have a connection with everybody probably, right? Mm. (laughs) For the whole, everybody's gonna, but that's not really even true. It's, it's, um, I love that just, the math of that, first of all, but but it also means that belonging and, and creating a strong sense of community and shared identity is accessible, it, it, you know, as long as you're intentional about it. Yeah. Pro tip, breakout rooms are your friend. There you go. Yes. When you think about any kind of facilitated group activity, yeah. if you say, turn to your neighbor and have a conversation and then turn to the neighbor on the other side and have a conversation <laughs> and then find one other person you haven't spoken to who's near you there, you've got your three there you pieces. Go. And if you're running online meetings in a forum where you can do breakout rooms, those are really, really powerful and they don't have to be long and they don't have to be deep conversations, but simply to say, okay, we're talking about this. We're having a little bit of discussion. We're doing some brainstorming. I'm going to put you in pairs and I'm going to put you in a group of three, just those things. They make those touches happen. Those, those moments of connection happen. Yeah. I think this is a really great segue to really the the closing part of this book, which deals a lot with how do leaders leverage knowledge of identity and an understanding of identity dynamics 
to better motivate people, better inspire people, and just do do better work and be better people. There's a lot in these closing sections, but I, I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about uh, this notion that we've referred to a few times, which is a leader creates an identity that's bigger than them, like bigger than any one individual. First of all, what do you think of that concept? But what do you think is actionable from that? Like, what can a leader concretely do with that if they're trying to motivate or if they feel like there's a lack of motivation uh, in the people they're leading? I wonder if doing an exercise like that, I am Mm. in in a controlled situation could just open everybody's eyes and help people find some of those connections that we don't even know exist. There was a lot of talk in that section about the idea of a leader being really transparent about their own identities, just bringing forward the fact that, okay, maybe you see me as boss, you know, to, to you, that's my identity, but I see my identity as being made up of this, 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 this. And, and so the, all of those influence how I act as a boss. So allowing people to see you more transparently as a multitude of identities and then inviting them to share theirs so that it it allows people to literally become more than the person in that seat over there or the person with that action item on the project list and see what kind of connections that creates and also just what kind of bigger knowledge that creates about the people in the room and the people that are working together. Yeah. There's a variation on this kind of exercise that Brene Brown did in one of the early videos I saw of her. It may have been one of her TED Talks. She said, uh, we're going to play stand up, sit down. And it's stand up if you, and then it was an identity thing. And then it was a, okay, sit, sit down, stand up if you, and it just, and she did like five things that she had people stand up for. And you just saw different people standing up for all of the things. And some of the people stood up for more than one thing and they weren't related identities. It was like... (laughs) <laughs> it was like, you stand up if you had breakfast this morning and stand huh. up if you took the train to, to come here and stand <laughs> up if you like the color blue or stand up if you're a mountains person. And th- so there were things that weren't like stand up if you're gay and stand up if you're straight. Like it wasn't making the divide. Right. It was finding the places where we tend to overlap across and be di- like, yes, we're different, but we don't tend to think of them as identity categories. But in fact, they are part of what makes us who we are and they are actually identity categories. They're just not the ones that we politicize. Uh, And so that was really, I've done variations of that exercise and I always find it really interesting where you're like, oh, you, um, you know, I work in a company where there's an enormous amount of really geeky culture stuff on the surface. And it's really interesting to see the overlaps between like, oh, you're the Star Wars person. You're the Star Trek person. We're the B5 people. We're the, oh, you're that obscure anime thing too. Or (laughs) you play that video game or wait a minute, wordy over here. And it's just like, oh, the nuances matter. I think also this is a place where leaders can lean on vision and corporate identity and corporate mission in a different way by languaging like here at this company, we yeah. 
yeah. are working on this project together gets to that. Like, this is our mission we, here. We do this. That's an identity call. It's part of why leaders being consistent in terms of articulating the mission of the company can be really powerful because it also can do that. Like, oh yeah, we're here to do this awesome thing together. And I think in the world that I'm in, where I'm in a founder led company, it becomes really, really powerful when the founder separates their identity from their role as leader of the company. Um, because the role is different than who they are. Yeah. And they can be explicit about that. They can stand up in front of a group of people and say, as the leader of the company, I have to do this. And then you, they, they're, they're distinguishing that's only part of who they are as a person. Oh, I like that distinction a lot. Yeah. And, and what you said about company mission, Kate, made me think about how important it is to be honest about that and to be collaborative about that. Because I'm mm-hmm. guessing we've all, and maybe many of our listeners too, <laughs> have worked at places where there is a mission and they are using that we language, the sharing in that mission, but it still doesn't resonate because it, I don't know if people always feel like they were a part of coming up with that, or they don't see themselves represented in that, or those connections aren't drawn accurately. So then it kind of backfires, right? It doesn't become part of their identity. It's like, well, I have nothing to do with that, you know? Um, yeah. So it's a, it has to be a really, I think, thoughtful exercise. That idea of wanting to be part of something bigger than you. If you didn't have an opportunity to craft the mission, then it really is up to the leader and the leaders to help people kind of map down to that particular person and their role and show how what they are doing on a daily basis feeds into this, feeds into this and feeds into the mission and help them draw that connection. Because I think you're right with some really large organizations, you can have your daily nuts and bolts, roles and responsibility and really stay in that and not necessarily feel connected to what the organization itself is doing. And I think some really amazing cultures that we've either experienced or we've heard about, read about, are the ones where the people who are doing frontline customer service feel just as much a part of the overall mission as the people who are figuring out five-year, 10-year strategy. And that's a skill. And that's something to your point earlier, Nithya, that people have to be, and leaders have to be deliberate and intentional about. Yeah. I think that it's one of those things where leaders do themselves a favor if they're intentional about it. Individual contributors or people in any role individually also do themselves a favor if they make the choice to connect those dots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as an individual, whatever my role is, it serves me to make those connections. As a leader, I do myself no favors if I assume that people are going to make those connections for themselves. Yeah, that's right. It's two way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm struck by how much of what we've talked about in terms of this two way piece just ties back to other books that we've read and other conversations that we've had and how much we talk about leadership from any place and leadership as a mindset and leadership as a set of activities and how so many of the things that we're talking about across this podcast are right here in the space of identity. Like if we think of ourselves as a leader, it doesn't matter what our role is. Yeah. Yeah. And we can bring these kinds of things to bear to have impact in the organizations. 
And if we are a leader by role, there are things that we have to take on as a responsibility to be effective in that job. And therefore, it behooves us also to take on that identity. But it's much easier to take on that identity when there's a role that someone gives us that says, okay, here's your identity for now. I, I'm so struck by this, Kate. Uh, you're, you're connecting the dots for me right now of leadership as a chosen identity. I think that's, um, well, it's blowing my mind right now. And yet I would say, say that it's where we came from. Like us as a threesome, we came together as people who know each other and care about each other and friends in a program where we were doing leadership development. And in fact, the very first piece of the training was to start seeing ourselves as leaders. Yes. Like adopt the identity of leader. The idea of lead from anywhere. Yeah. So you could read this book, whether you have a role that is designates you as a leader and just start thinking about the collage of identities that you get to interact with on a daily basis and help others. The other thing about the training that we all went through is I was also thinking about the idea of alignment versus agreement and the way that maybe that's a way with some of these really stark polarizations or whatever word you want to put on it, that idea of, okay, but if we go up 10,000 feet and go up 10,000 feet or, and now I'm mixing my metaphors at the foundation, (laughs) what is it? (laughs) We're either going up or down, but somewhere we're going to find a place where we're at the right level of abstraction. Yes. Yeah. So what is it that we actually do have in common in terms of what do we want to see? And if we can agree on that, does it then maybe widen our view and our perspective in order to hear the other person and hear that that's their kind of how? We agree on the what an effective or an efficient system as just a vanilla example. You think that the way to do that is this way. I think the way to do that is this way. And rather than just kind of really butting heads on the how, remind each other that we actually want the same thing. So how can we listen to each other and consider different ways to get to the same result? Yeah, I would almost even take that a step further, Alyssa, and say that butting heads on the how is actually maybe okay, because the risk, if you don't do that kind of healthy conflict thing is that you're, you're operating in the space of who, right? Like, I don't like who this person is. I don't connect to who this, like when you're in that realm, it's just, I mean, I don't want to say impossible, but basically impossible to get to the level of how, but once you are butting heads on the how you can actually make progress there. Uh, I mean, or not, right. (laughs) There's, there's a chance to, there's a real chance to, because then you're, you're at that, like really kind of implementation level. Um, but you're not shutting them out as a person. And I think that's the point you're making, right? Yeah. You're broadening, you're broadening their identity in your own head to Mm -hmm. say, okay, I might get turned off by this, this, and this, but look at where we agree and let me broaden my view on this person so that they're not just it's getting rid of that word. Just Kate, you've been talking a lot about language. And I think that's something that's hitting me is that just can be a very dismissive word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're just 
this political party or they're just right and nobody's just nobody's just everybody's so much richer than that i'm struck by two things in this context the first is the chapters in the book that are back to back that are finding solidarity and fostering dissent yes we're all in this together. And also we challenge each other because the downside of groupthink is that we don't take in lots of perspectives and we just sort of heard along in a very narrow way of thinking about things, finding that place that is big enough for us all to belong. And then here's the way that we work together that acknowledges that we're all individuals with our own perspectives and our own sense of what's going on and our own skill sets and We don't see things exactly the same way because we're all of us bigger than this one thing that has us brought together. Yes. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure that I can think of anything that's much bigger than my sense of myself as a human being or as sort of connected to the universe. Like eventually there's a level of abstraction that is big enough that I don't know how to get beyond that. Um, So that's interesting. But the other thing that I was struck by as Alyssa was talking about the just and the separation is when I was first in private practice as a coach and I was trying to figure out who my customers were for marketing purposes and trying to figure out what my niche was, I was very, very concerned about being unique and being special and being like the one in the marketplace and defining myself in such a way that people were like, oh, we got to go to Kate to do this. And every time I saw somebody else in the marketplace, there was a part of me that was going like, but I want to do that. Why are you out there doing that? And then at some point, somebody Somebody opened my eyes by writing a blog post or talking about it in a speech or whatever and said, there's too much work for any one coach to do in this world. And so even if your niche is so tiny and specific, unless there are only 20 people who need what you have to offer in that niche at any given time on the planet, you're actually collaborating with the other people in your niche to serve the whole world. And I was just like, oh my God, look at all my allies out there. Yes. Doing the same work as I am in a slightly different space. And that was so liberating in terms of just being like, okay, I can just be me and I can just do what I want to do. And I can let go of needing to see them as bad. There was a quote pretty early in the book that I really liked that was knowledge isn't so much what's in our heads, but what's shared between us. Mm. So that idea that, yeah, Kate, you're coming with maybe some very specific knowledge on how to help folks, but the more you collaborate with clients and with other people doing the same work, it just increases the knowledge that's out there in the world. Yes. Not only is there, is there enough room for all of it? It's deeply needed. Needed. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So let's move into our thinkaways um, and what we want people to really be chewing on after the close of this episode. I, I had many from this book, but the one that I'll pick has to do with dissent, uh, which is something, Kate, you brought up earlier. What I'm still holding on to after reading this book is this notion that although conventional wisdom says that belonging in any particular group has to do with, you know, complying with all the social norms and doing everything right and everybody agrees and all that. The research in this book indicates that the progress of the group depends on dissent and it depends a lot on people who take the time and take the energy to dissent because they they care enough. And so the think away that I want to offer our listeners has to do with the application of this in the workplace where unfortunately too often dissenters are often actually 
penalized for that or ostracized and deemed to be like, you know, do they even care about this job? Do they even care about this team? Are they really even committed? And so I want to turn that on its head based on the research in this book to say, no, those are the people that care the most. (laughs) Listen to them. Maybe you don't agree with them, but listen to them because they care enough to dissent. The people you have to worry about that don't feel a sense of belonging with their group, who might leave or whatever, are the people who don't care enough to speak up, who are leaning out, who are passive, who are silent. Those are the ones you actually have to be a little bit worried about in terms of their commitment to the shared identity. Um, so that's my takeaway. I mean, I think that the root question that I want to leave myself and others with is this question of given that we have multiplicities in our identity, how are we choosing both for ourselves as individuals and for the groups that we're part of, which of those to highlight? And are they serving us or are they getting in the way? And And if they're getting in the way, what other identities might serve better? So I think mine pretty much complements what Kate was saying. And I think my think away would be to take a look at yourself and your identities and even do the exercise in the book to widen your own perspective on your own identity. Because as Kate was saying, it's possible that you have even a narrow view of your own identities and you tend to go out in the world as these three things. So almost as a precursor to Kate's think away, look at all of the ones that you hold. And then what would it look like if you bring more of those to the front in the way you lead? That's awesome. I like that one. That was Leadership Arts Review. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It really helps us get the word out there. Tell two friends. Also be sure to follow us at Leadership Arts Review on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn to get the latest updates. Our website is podcast.leadershipartsreview.com. Leadership Arts Review is a four Impala production. Music adapted from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.